0: This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell.
1: Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for June 19th, 2017. Vladimir Putin's Russia has been characterized by many as an evil empire seeking to interfere in the elections of the US and other democratic countries. In this podcast, I'm talking to an author who thinks that Russia should be an ally in bringing stability to the world.
0: Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested, whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic. What matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice.
1: Richard Nixon was president for nearly six years when he resigned. He was elected in November 1968, and he took office the next January. On June 17th, 1972, in the run-up to the election that would see him re-elected, Bernard Barker, Virgilio Gonzalez, Eugenio Martinez, James W. McCord Jr., and Frank Sturgis were arrested while burgling the DNC offices at the Watergate Hotel. At that point, Nixon was three and a half years in office. The burglars were convicted and sentenced on January 30th, 1973. Nixon had been in office for more than four years at that point. More than a year later, a grand jury in Washington, D.C. indicted several former Nixon aides who became known as the Watergate Seven. That was the real beginning of the end for Nixon. From then on, his presidency was dominated by Watergate, though he didn't finally resign until August ninth, 1974. There are other things than Watergate, for which history has proved Nixon did not perform well. The outstanding one is that he was the president who began the catastrophe, that is, the war on drugs... But it's not all one way. For example, Warren E. Berger, Harry Blackmun, Lewis Powell and William Rehnquist were all appointed to the Supreme Court by Nixon. I think most historians would agree that Nixon's appointments proved themselves worthy of the court more than of the partisan system that chose them. My point is that Nixon had several years of governing as a reasonably competent president – You don't have to be a fan of his to agree that, particularly in his first term, Nixon seemed like he was a standard, competent president. The burglary that led to his resignation didn't happen until the end of his first term, and it was another two years until it triggered his resignation. Of course, now we hardly remember anything but Watergate about Nixon. But for people alive then, there was lots more going on in presidential politics. Fast forward to today and the firing of Michael Flynn, the first real shock in the ongoing saga of Trump's involvement with Russia, happened barely three weeks into this presidency. And it doesn't look like that story is going away any time soon. I'm just saying.
0: Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think.
1: On a Skype line now, I have Dan Kovalik. He's a human rights lawyer, a labor rights lawyer and counsel for the United Steelworkers Union, and he's just published the book called The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, How the CIA and the Deep State Have Conspired to Vilify Russia. Um, Dan, why, why are the CIA and the Deep State trying to vilify Russia?
2: Well, uh, and they've been doing it for some time. And of course, it's not only Russia, but right now, Russia is the flavor of the month, and it is because the U.S., uh, which has the by far the largest military budget on Earth, uh, which is about equivalent to the top nine next countries combined uh, at about $600 billion, uh, the U.S. is always in search of enemies um, in order to justify that type of uh, military expenditure. And I think Russia, you know, Eric Hobsbawm, the uh, British historian, who actually passed away fairly recently, um, you know, he said, "For Americans, uh, the fear of Russia is in our DNA now." You know, because of the Cold War, uh, the first Cold War, I'll say, because I think we're in a new one now, actually. Um,
1: and and I was looking at I was looking down at an article. I, unfortunately, I haven't got to read the book yet, but I was looking at an article um, that you wrote for Huffington Post, which was telling liberals that they should not participate in condemning russia um russia has a horrible human rights record it's an incredibly unequal society and it's ruled essentially by a dictator uh shouldn't isn't that something that all liberals should should uh
2: be active against well uh Um, Yes, in a sense. I mean first of all, I would quibble a little bit with the claim that Putin is somehow a dictator. Certainly there's authoritarian aspects to his government, which by the way you can trace back to Yeltsin, uh, which the US didn't have any problem with – but he does have about 80 percent support, the poll shows. So, I mean, he is certainly governing with the consent of his people, much more so than uh, Donald Trump is, by the way, who's polling at, I think, less than 40 percent. But in any case, yes, I think, though, you know, you could be critical of Russia. And, and again, my the, the title of my article was uh, Listen, Liberals, Russia's Not Our Enemy. So mm-hmm. I think that is a a difference,
1: Dan. Just to clear up vocabulary once, when we're talking in international relations, when we say Russia, you mean essentially the Ru- Russia as it is run by its current regime.
2: Well, it has to be, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean the Russian Federation.
1: And you mentioned uh, what Donald Trump said about uh, Putin when a journalist put to him that, for example, he has journalists that he doesn't like murdered. Uh, Trump said essentially, "We kill people too." Isn't that playing into a narrative that is very popularly promoted by the TV media, particularly in uh, Russia, which is entirely controlled by Putin, which is to minimise his own crimes by saying that it's the same wherever you go. It's objectively different. In Russia, opposition journalists, that's to say someone who investigates the enormous wealth that Putin has amassed, are highly likely to be murdered in the street, machine gunned, bombed or poisoned. That's not something that's happening in Russia, in in the United States.
2: Well, first of all, let me just back up a little bit, if I can. Sure. So, again, the the thesis of my book and of of the article you mentioned is that Russia is not an enemy, okay, that it's a country we can work with, we can partner with on various issues. But, again, that's not to say that they're beyond Repute or beyond criticism for some of the things that you're mentioning. I mean, you can be critical of those things while also working with a country like that. I mean, there, you know, no country is obviously without blame. Uh, they may be worse than a lot of other countries, but better than others. For example, Saudi Arabia that the U.S. partners with, uh, which it makes no pretense of being a democracy, right? But, you know, in terms of the question you asked, so yeah, there was a question that Trump had, and I talk about this in my my book uh, by Bill O'Reilly, who asked him. He said, "You know, isn't Putin a killer?" And yeah, Trump's response was, uh, "Don't something so, to the so, effect, so are uh, we? W- I think he said. Yeah, something like that, you know, or are we so innocent? Yeah, we have our own killers, et cetera. So first of all, in terms of journalists being killed in Russia, I don't dispute that journalists are being killed. Are some of them being killed uh, at the order of the state? I'm sure that's true. I'm sure there's it's true, though, that others are not. I mean I talk about in my book that some of the murders attributed to, to Putin may in fact have been ordered by the uh, head of Chechnya, which, you know – uh, Russia's who, had, who is essentially
1: appointed by Putin.
2: Well, yes, in a sense. But as you know, the Russia has had two wars with uh, Chechnya uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. It is not like Russia has complete control over what happens there. And again, to effect uh, change there, I don't think they want to have another war. But in any uh, okay, case, r- r- not
1: Hold on. Hold on for a second, Dan. There are very, very few journalists left in Russia – who are openly critical of Putin. That's an extremely small subset of the media in Russia. And being in that subset makes you extremely more likely to be murdered.
2: Well, again, uh, you know, I think some of that, I don't know that that's true. You oh, know, well, I do, and I've you, seen the list. Yeah. But again, it doesn't mean that the U.S. has to fear that the Russians are coming. And, in fact, maybe engaging with Russia is more helpful on uh, a score like that than uh, encircling Russia with NATO troops, which we're doing, mm-hmm. um, claiming every day here in the U.S. And, and, again, being here in the U.S., I have a good sense of it, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that somehow Putin picked the president of the United States, which is an absurdity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is not helpful. You know, to dealing with some of these issues. And as I note in my book, and I, I agree, you know, you you can't go down the road of moral equivalencies and whatnot. But on our border of Mexico, four journalists have been killed this year. Their state is, is, is quite repressive. Uh, we've actually helped uh, move it in that direction through various uh, means, the drug war. Mm-hmm. For example, um, you know, it's not like Russia is a unique – uh is unique in many of the respects uh that you say I, I certainly compared to a lot of Western countries I would say yeah that's true though I mean Russia has its own history of of czars and of course uh the Soviet Union which certainly had <laughs> uh, it, it could not be described uh, certainly as democratic in a western sense right um, Russia has its own uh, development that that it's going through and i think you know really again to me yes really. Re- you think
1: you think it's moving forward o- under uh, um, during the reign of putin for example all opposition uh, voices have essentially been closed down all tv stations that were not owned by him or his allies or by the government have um, either been closed or been uh, acquired through means less than legal by Putin and his allies. There is now, and TV by a wide margin, TV by a wide margin is the most important media in Russia, and there are now no TV stations left that will broadcast anything critical of Putin.
2: Well, there are four political parties in in the Duma there, including the Communist Party, which I believe is the strongest uh, uh, party, biggest party in Russia. So, I mean, there are uh, opposition Uh, voices there. I'll also say that in the U.S., for example, you don't have so much state control of media of the type you have uh, in Russia. And yet the idea that the, the press here is independent is a joke. I mean, it largely just parrots the State Department line, especially in terms of foreign policy. I mean, we have our own Struggles uh, with those types of issues and with democracy, by the way. You know, we have a country uh, that is ruled by money, where the elections are ruled by money. We have an ironclad two-party system and the two parties aren't that much different from each other. That's true. But Daniel, I think
1: kind of where this argument is tending towards is that, and I think you've probably correctly seen that liberals are very, very sore about the election of Donald Trump and they're looking for a scapegoat. And that it might not be entirely rational uh, for them to blame Russia in the way that is happening. And, And there's a focus on Russia that didn't exist previously. But for some reason, and I think perhaps just as a reaction to liberals, there are some Trump supporters who are telling themselves that Putin is a, a wonderful guy altogether because because he annoys the liberals, possibly for no other reason at all. And th- that's a very two-dimensional or even one-dimensional argument.
2: And I agree with that. I mean, and first of all, by the way, I'm not a, I am not a Trump supporter. Let me make that clear. I'm sure. a leftist. Uh, I didn't vote for Trump. Uh, I didn't vote for Clinton either, by the way. I voted for the Green Party because I think both of those candidates had their – Great shortcomings, uh, to say the least. And I agree, Mm -hmm. you can't paint Putin as some kind of saint. But I also think, you know, I was raised in a Roman Catholic uh, family. And I learned from the Bible that you don't, you know, pick the uh, 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 speck out of your brother's eye when you have a plank in your own. I mean, to me, the U.S. focuses almost exclusively on the shortcomings and crimes of others while ignoring our own which I think for democracy is not particularly constructive. I mean, if we have a democracy here in this country, and I think it's a limited one. In fact, Jimmy Carter said in 2000, I believe it was 2015, that, you know, our democracy is broken, you know, that we don't really live in a democratic country anymore.
1: Dan, Dan, I I agree with you. and, And I think that there are large aspects of the US democracy that is broken. And I think there's big problems with the media. And I also agree with you that it is not a good idea to focus on the flaws of others to the exclusion of addressing the flaws of the United States. But all of that notwithstanding, there are very clear, objective reasons why Putin should be seen as a real threat, clearly a threat to freedom and democracy in Russia, and a real threat to freedom and democracy in the West. And there's no question that at the very minimum his media such as rt the uh formerly called russia today this uh, news channel was promoting trump very hard he was f- intervening in the french presidential election uh apparently financing marine le pen the Actually, fascist candidate right there that hold, the f- hold on for f- one second yeah. dan the uh, putin is a ruler who has Invaded multiple foreign countries and uh, engineered to have frozen conflicts there. He has stolen unimaginable amounts of money and of course being a journalist in Russia one of the most dangerous things is to Im- to investigate Putin's wealth. He's estimated to be worth at least 70 billion dollars which is an extraordinary amount for somebody who's never had a job outside government work. He is a genuinely dangerous character regardless of any political ideology or prejudice against him.
2: Well let me back up a little bit. First of all the fact that he may be a threat to freedom and democracy within the borders of Russia. I would dispute that to some extent, but let's assume that to be true. Really? You'd dispute that? The guy has 80% support of the population. I mean, you have to give that to him. I mean, uh, he has done some very productive things for the Russian people, and that's why he's popular. He got their economy back on track. Again, I don't dispute that he – has an authoritarian style of leadership, which we can and should criticise. But that doesn't make him a threat to the West. You know, you mentioned the French elections. You know the French government itself has come out and said there's no evidence that he interfered in their elections, as was claimed by the What I said
1: there was very clear. I said that he financed it through a Russian-owned bank based in the Czech Republic. He financed the uh, Front National, the fascist party candidate Marine Le Pen and her campaign.
2: Well, I was not aware of that, and it may be true that he did that. But again, you know, you say, "Oh, he's he's entered all these countries. What countries has he entered?" We could, you talk about Ukraine, mm-hmm. Syria, Azerbaijan, and Armenia, Georgia. Well, Georgia, Moldova, case which we can talk about. And by the way, the the Georgia was uh, happened under Medvedev. Uh, when he was president. But how about the U.S. in Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan? Yeah, but Afghanistan. My,
1: my, my only problem with that, that, that sentence, uh, Dan, is the first words, how about, sure, the U.S. has done things that are deeply reprehensible. None of them excuse any of the crimes of Putin.
2: But this, I, okay, agreed. We can agree on that. But even the examples you give do not make him a threat to the West. He is not going to evade Western Europe. He is not going to attack the United States of America. Do
1: you think you would be that confident if you lived in Estonia?
2: Well, maybe not, but that's a different uh, Okay, case.
1: Right now, in Estonia and in Latvia, which are, I should say for people who don't know, are two members of the European Union. They're uh, also members of NATO. They are are former Soviet republics because they were invaded by the Soviet Union towards the end of World War II and they were annexed, having previously been uh, independent countries. They regained their independence at the start of the 1990s. They have large Russian minorities that were moved in since 1945 and Russia is clearly, deliberately causing ethnic tension there, uh, funding... Uh, Russian language media that its whole focus is uh, highlighting uh, supposed grievances of the ethnic Russian population, uh, sponsoring cyber attacks, and having troop buildups on their borders. Do you really think that they'd be comfortable with Putin
2: there? Well, they may not be, but NATO is there, as you mentioned. NATO is on. Up to the Russian border, I think uh, the idea again that that Russia would attack with NATO troops there is is absurd. And also, by the way, the fact that they fund uh, uh, media of some kind, uh, I don't see as a crime. Uh, every country does that. By the way, you no, mentioned no, it's Arche- not a crime, but it's a good indicator of their intentions. Well, I don't agree with that. You know, the U.S. has Voice of America. Every country tries to spread its own view of the world. And by the way, I've been on, on RT News, for example, several times. I uh, watch uh, sure, RT sure, News. Sure, but,
1: but I, I'm, I know I'm not suggesting that RT or any of the other uh, Russian-sponsored channels are a crime, but I'm suggesting that if you look at them, you get a good idea of uh, the Kremlin's thinking.
2: Yeah, and some. Of, by the way, some of the thinking's pretty good. I mean, first of all, the U.S. needs critical opposition uh, uh, press here because it doesn't have much. RT is one of the few things that gives the Americans a different perspective of the world. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I don't see it as overtly pro-Russian. In fact, RT has been very outspoken against the homophobic policies of Russia. Did you know that? They, they, I, they're they not guess. control Yeah. So, you know, to say that there's some uniform spokesman of the Kremlin, I don't think is fair. Uh, in the same way that claiming the New York Times is totally independent of of the U.S. uh, State Department's view of the world would also equally not be true. So again, it's not to say that Putin's a saint or that he's great or that there's things we can't criticize him for. But my point is, as someone living in the United States is to to overstate his influence in the world, good or evil, to overstate how bad he is – to claim that he's the number one enemy of the United States, which a number of US officials have done, and very recently, is not only wrong, because they're not, uh, but it also is dangerous. Well, well can I, can I
1: tackle you one thing on one thing that you said in your article, the article Listen, Liberals, Russia is Not Our Enemy? You talk about the possibility of Russia and uh, the United States being allied. In Syria to fight ISIS. You're just factually wrong on that. Russia has not intervened in Syria against ISIS. Russia has only fought against the uh, liberal anti-Assad forces. Now, Syria is a very complex, multi-sided war, but, and there are, and there are many factions fighting each other, but there are some factions not fighting each other as well, and ISIS is not fighting Assad, the Syrian government, or russia that's just not factually true
2: well i disagree with that and i would cite by the way robert fisk uh uh who writes for the independent of london who i think is a very well respected uh, journalist who's spent a lot of time in syria he has a very different view uh, uh of the wars you're saying and i do as well but in any case well, no, no, I no but just to go, to
1: go to to stick to absolute facts ISIS has electricity. They have electricity because they buy it from the Assad regime. Their oil, the oil drilled in the ISIS areas, is exported, smuggled out via Assad-controlled areas of Syria. And one other issue, the the, Russia has installed very sophisticated air defences within Syria. ISIS has no air power whatsoever. What are they doing that for?
2: Well, again, look, I think, though, to say that they're not fighting ISIS there is just, I believe, factually uh, untrue. Uh, and again, I cite Robert Fisk's articles, which you can read. He's been to uh, to Syria. But again, the other point is – let me just be clear.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Whether, again, you disagree with that uh, is fine. What I certainly think should happen in Syria is whatever happens – I would hate to see uh, Russia and the U.S. somehow collide and lead to a greater conflagration, which I do think uh, the one thing uh, that Clinton might have done that might have provoked such a a confrontation. And again, I think – this vilification of Russia could lead to that sort of thing. So I think certainly we could cooperate to the extent of not getting in each other's ways and bombing each other, which would be probably best uh for the world. And that's my point. And, uh, again, like uh, I'm not, and I also think by the way, they could be helpful. I think I also mentioned in my article on things like global warming, uh, there, there's a lot of things that we could use Russia uh, for to, to help us with, To advance the interests of the world,
1: Dan Kovalik, human rights lawyer, labor rights lawyer for the United Steelworkers Union, and author of the plot to scapegoat Russia. Thank you very much for
2: talking to me. Thank you very much.
0: Never miss a show. You can subscribe to the podcast for free using iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or any other podcast software or app. See challengingopinions dot com backslash subscribe for details.
1: That's almost it for the Challenging Opinions podcast published on June 19th, 2017. I have links to Dan's book and other information about the things we were talking about in the show notes for this podcast that you can find on the website. And if you know someone who I should interview, or have an idea about what topics I should be covering, please get in touch. I'd be really interested to hear your feedback. If you like the podcast, there is one thing that you could do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes, give the podcast a rating, and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at ChallengingO, and you can also follow Dan Kovalik at Daniel M. Kovalik. And most importantly, subscribe to the show. It's free. You can use iTunes or Google Play Music. And there's even an RSS feed on the website if you use any other podcast player. And if you don't use a podcast player, you can just listen on the website and you can get an automatic email by just entering your email address on the website. So each time a new show goes up, you get a simple email with a link to listen with no spam at all, I promise. You can find all of that or get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. The assistant producer is Liam McLaughlin. Thank you for listening.